Hello, my name is Tucker Johnson, and I am your host today as we experience NIMSY Live, where we talk about the latest and greatest in translation, localization, internationalization, culturalization, and all that fun stuff global companies need to delight their international customers, or at least not piss them off too much. On this program, we invite guests who like to have fun and have some value to add for our audience of globalization professionals. I'm always eager to provide a platform to those with a good story or a good data set. So let us know if there are any topics you'd like covered or guests we should reach out to for future episodes. If you aren't already subscribed to NIMSY, now is your chance. You can subscribe to us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, any of those platforms, I believe, will be a good bet for you wherever you're joining us live today on or if you're watching the recording. You can just hit that follow, subscribe button and you'll be one of the first people to find out when we publish new research or when we schedule new events and live streams like this. Today's topic, uh, well, a little bit about the platform first before we get into today's topic. Uh, this is a live event, so I see people are already joining from the, the chat over there. People from Georgia, Spain, Chicago, Seattle, Greece, Portugal, Belgium. We have a very international crowd, so welcome to everybody that's joining in on the live stream. Uh, without further ado, I'll get right into the topic today. We are talking about, you guessed it, generative AI and how it's changing the workforce in the language services industry and really beyond the language services industry. So in this episode, um, we've invited two industry experts, Sergio and Silvagia from Scientific, our friends over at Scientific, formerly known as Pactera Edge to dive into the different areas of generative AI that pretty much we feel anybody should be exploring. And we're going to be looking at some general themes today. We're going to be looking at different models. We're going to be looking at use cases, ways of implementing, implementation. How do we get started? How do we score and how do we evaluate the quality of the output of generative AI? Looking at some of the pros and cons, talking about response, responsible AI. What does that mean? What does it mean to have a human in the loop? Um, some specific questions that we're going to try to squeeze in to the next 45 minutes to an hour are how can large language models be trained with domain-specific knowledge to address the challenges of specialized use cases? What is reinforcement learning from human feedback, also known as RLHF, for those of you that are down with the lingo? Um, and how does it contributing to the continuous improvement of AI systems? What is MTQE? Uh, how is, and if you're an acronym geek like me, and if you don't know what that is, then stay tuned to find out. How is generative AI being used for multilingual content generation and transcreation? And how does the fine-tuning, how does fine-tuning of the models contribute to the effectiveness and efficiency of large language models in localization efforts? Really quickly, I'll give an introduction to our guest here. We have, oops, who are already off screen. I'll fix that. Don't worry. Um, well, while I am fixing it, though, I will... Go back here. We must have lost Teresa. Yeah, Teresa left, and she she messed us up here. That's okay. Um, Sergio, I'm gonna I'm gonna turn it over to you, and you guys can introduce yourself while I'm I'm fixing the settings here. Thank you, Tucker, for having us. Um, can you hear me well? Yes, I can. Go for it. Okay, perfect. So I'm Sergio Brucoletti, and I'm the AVP of um, Solution Technology here at Scientific. Basically. Uh, I manage all of our AI data services and localization technology. Um, so everything that has to do with uh, specifically research into the generative AI model space, which is booming at the moment, would be sort of 
from a globalization perspective under my my and my team's radar. And uh, Salvaggio, you want to go next? Yes. Uh, although they might not see you yet on screen, <laughs> she's here. We'll, I'm here. <laughs> we'll get you. We'll get you. Okay. Can you hear me, Tucker? Yes, ma'am. Okay. So, hello, everyone. I'm Selvaggia Cerquetti, and I'm working here at Scientific. I am the team lead of our European translation team, and I've been working also as a language quality manager for the past few years. And uh, specifically, I have been working in AI-related accounts for, let's say, AI-related customers. And of course, as a language quality manager, I'm in charge of making sure that whatever we do is um, at the expectations, let's say, of our customers, that everything will be that basically that our customers are happy with what we do. And of course, now we are investigating a lot into and, and deep diving into these language, large language models topics and AI and how to introduce AI in our workflows and et cetera, et cetera. So now I'm concentrating uh my investigations let's say on on this well well thank you both for for coming to the show and thank you for um taking over my job of introducing you while while i fix the technical challenges behind the scenes um i, I wanted to start off just to kind of set the scene here i know this um and some people in the industry know this but not everybody knows this scientific has really been involved with ai since before it was cool I would say like nowadays, everybody's posting about AI, everybody's, you know, everybody's an expert, right? And, you know, if everybody's an expert, then really is anybody an expert, but you guys over at Scientific, you guys have been involved with artificial intelligence and really kind of on the cutting edge of all of that for years and years and years. So you have that kind of built into your background and culture. Before we get into the spe specific topics, maybe you can give us an idea of what type of services do you offer? Um, not just around AI, just in general, but tell us a little bit about Scientific and the work that you're doing to help your clients out there. Yeah, absolutely. So um, that's actually a really good point. We, we aren't, let's say, born uh, or, or as a language service provider, we more come from AI data space. And myself, actually, I'm more into AI and this boom of uh, language and consumption of language in, in the, with NLP and large, large language models brought us sort of some of our focus back into localization. But um, mainly we offer services on the engineering, so deployment of AI for large variety of use cases. Um, see, for example, retail, see fraud detection, uh, and in the past decade, we've been very strong in what we call AI data services and uh, or, or AI enablement. So basically enabling customers that have already models in place or already products in place uh, to help those products become global. So what is the right training data? What is, right. how do you reduce the bias? And what does it take to launch an AI product in a specific market, for example, in the, um, in like we, we started a long time ago in, in the speech sector, for example, what what does it come? What does it go into localizing an AI model, right? Mm. So, and if you look at speech, a lot goes into play. For example, in accents, I'm Salvaggio and I are Italians. There are so many different accents depending from the region, and how do models um, respond to that? And I think uh, that is today we are sort of replicating that experience back into the localization space, with, which is sort of where 
part of Pactera was previously, part of Scientific was previously in the LSP space. We're bringing all of the experience that we've made in the last year in the AI space and, and building enterprise AI solutions back into bringing those benefits to the localization industry. Very nice, very nice. So a lot, a lot of training, a lot of improving it, um, providing that human in the loop. I think so. Is it safe to say you, you you're the people that are working on making sure Alexa can understand Scottish accents? <laughs> we do some of that. That for sure, there is a lot in uh, uh, there is a lot that goes into play. Not not even in in accents, but also into just making sure that if if we take an assistant like Alexa. Uh, that it gets the right cultural references, for example, when, when someone speaks to them. You okay. Know, even the way sentiment is perceived, it's it's very different from, from culture to culture, right? And and that's something large language models have to become good at. If right. If you wanna sort of focus, yeah. Well, and, and this brings into to play, and Savagia, stop me if, if you have anything. You guys can interrupt me at any time. I talk too much, so I'm told. Um, but this this brings us kind of into our, our first question here about adapting AI, because AI is, first of all, it's a concept that's misunderstood by most people, probably myself as well, right? But there's these base models that are out there, and these are the names that, that people have heard of before. But in order for it to really be useful and valuable for global organizations, or any organization for that matter, it needs to be trained with their what we would call domain specific knowledge in order to address those specific challenges and those specific use cases. So maybe we can start with that. How can, what does that look like? How can you take a, a general AI and train it with your domain specific knowledge? It's going to make it even more useful for your specific challenges for your specific clients out there. Um, I'll, I'll start you and start then uh, you'll add the, I think uh, actually it's it's very funny that Pot and Salvaggio are here today because the the reason why it's important to have two stakeholders, you know, I come more from technical side, which is our language expert, is exactly for that reason. Uh, when we started this journey of looking at um, generative AI models, looking at it from a technical perspective, from an engineering perspective. We would all go, okay, it's translating Chinese, large language models are generating content in Chinese very well, for example. And uh, we would pass those as successes, let's say, oh, this, this has been very successful. We can use this technology to do more of that. And this is how many companies are approaching it. They're maybe giving some content to, let's say, a chat GPT, which is the large language model everyone is familiar with. Right. That, that's go, the hurt. That's the name everyone's heard. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and oh, it does translation quite well, or it does, uh, or it understands how yeah. to generate. But does it, does it do trends? Sorry to derail the conversation. Oh, okay. I'll save that for later. I'll, I'll save that for later because uh, please continue. Uh, but it hasn't really been trained on, on, on you know, la or languages side by side, right? It's it, what it's doing is just a guess of how that particular content might look like. In fact, in, in our original testings, from a technical perspective, we didn't notice that a large, uh, a large language model was mixing simplified and traditional Chinese. And that's not important for the purpose that, our, that a chat GPT has, is not necessarily important. But for the type of industry we're in, that fine tuning is, is, is extremely valuable, right? So when we talk about picking the right large language model, there goes a lot of testing that goes into it, which is the first step. 
like what I would advise to anyone is don't stop at ChatGPT. Um, go further, try um, other variants. I mean, there are now Google is releasing theirs, Amazon is releasing theirs, and the open source community is doing so much on, yeah. on the space. And I think um, evaluating the base models is, is, is an important component. And I would say that what goes into your into the decision of the right generative model is the flexibility of how much you can customize. Like mm -hmm. we know GPT 3.5, GPT 4 aren't fine-tunable yet. Microsoft has announced that this is going to be available uh, by the end of the year, okay. but that means you're left with what GPT knows, right? Uh, while open source models, especially now that Open Llama is free for commercial use, might be a good choice for a lot of people. So what goes into that is what the use case is really important. Test it for your use case, and I would say have testing metrics and and uh, a variety of subjects to test this with. And especially if we look at the localization perspective, sometimes it's very subjective. You know, one linguist might tell you this is good, this is bad. So the wider is your testing matrix, uh, the better would be for you to choose the right models to start from, right? Models aren't terrible, they're just very general. Right? Sure. So you yeah. might really have the model right for, for you outside. And then the fine tuning is something that comes later. But I would say a minimal amount of testing is important as well as making sure that it fits at the best of its capabilities out of the box in your use case, right. right? And then that's where the human comes into the loop, of course, because once you have tested and seen that the technical part is functioning, that from a technical point of view, the results, the outputs that you're getting seem acceptable, then that's where you need to get approval, let's say, from a, a subject matter expert and an expert linguist, then let's say a human um, validator that would analyze actually the data and tell you if the work that the machine is doing is actually valid or not. And that's why uh, uh, the human is still so important in all this process. We don't have to forget that even if it looks like everything automatic and everything can be done by itself, that is not actually true. I mean, we really need now more than ever the uh, linguistic validation from, from human experts. So that is an essential point. Maybe not at the very beginning, not, not maybe at the very early stages, but then once you really want to implement, to apply this to a real workflow, a real project, that's when you really need human validators help you with the fine tuning, with understanding what's going on and why, you know, why issues happen in these automatic um, process data yeah. and that's extremely important i mean we cannot mm, we, we cannot uh, avoid <laughs> the human validation well, in this you can case. but at your own risk right can, Tech, it's, a, it's a free world you can do you can do what you want but <laughs> let's not forget that large language models at the moment hallucinate way more than uh, yep. they should <laughs> compared to technology like nmt Right. Yeah. So, and, and those hallucinations from what we've seen in the past uh, seven months, from a PR perspective, can cost companies millions of dollars. Oh, uh, there's already very fun stories to read out there and case studies about how people trusted AI when perhaps they shouldn't. Um, yeah. Before we end, you know, Os Oscar in the comments says that he says, "Oh, here comes the human in the loop," and so I think that's what we're going to talk about now with the. Um, RLHF stands for Reinforcement Learning from Human Feedback.
human in the loop is is probably the terminology I would use because I can't remember acronyms like that. But before we get to that, I, I saw another comment from Oscar. Hi, Oscar. Thanks for the comments, by the way. Um, where he says, he brings up an interesting point when as we're talking about, you made the comments that you're with some of the models out there right now, like ChatGPT, you're kind of stuck with the data that it's already been trained on. And Oscar makes a comment, those of us who speak minority languages, such as Galician, are aware of the fact that not all languages are made equal. AI, well, well, first of all, Oscar, I would say all languages are made equal, but they're not treated equally, perhaps, on the internet. So let's just to be politically correct there. Um, AI privileges the most used language. Um, what, what do you say about that? And what is there to be done about that? I would say that's very true. Uh, in the sense that yeah. uh, if we look at how many large language models are trained, they're trained from data from the web. So the reality is if a language isn't commonly used, you, you won't find it. You, you, the, the large, there is no way the large language model would be able to, to, to learn on something that is not used because it's using conversational data. It's using something that has been already written in the past. And if there isn't already a lot of material, that's where a large language model uh, will, will suffer from. Right. And, and uh, I would say those present a And, and more examples for, for, for the large language model to, to learn about the language, to learn about how that language is used, to learn slangs and, and everything that is part of the common understanding of, of, that goes into a language, right? So I, I agree with that comment, but I also think that it presents a unique opportunity for people that have that expertise because mm. i've seen a lot of headlines recently about oh is, is is localization going to be bad i mean i mean heard the term death which is so I mean, terrible every six months there's something yeah. out there that's going to be the death of our industry and you know yeah. i've been around for longer than six months so exactly that but having been said though that having been said even me I'm looking at this generative AI and language, large language models and all of this stuff that's coming out there. And even me, with all of my skepticism, I'm like, eh, I don't think it's going to kill our industry, but this is a game changer, right? It's a game changer, but let's not forget, it, it's, it's, it's in the world, right? It's, it's in the term, large language model. Right. So more than ever today, there is a conception of language in the AI space mm. in a large scale. So this is a prime opportunity for linguists that are going to be even more subject matter experts to help companies like us um, train these large language models and, and fine tune those large language models. We, we can't expect um, the large organizations that are building um, large language models today to take each language and because th these are built as domain general purpose models. So that's why they're so good. That's why the industry has finally noticed that um, AI is actually smart. This is, this is the first time that people have actually realized AI. And this is because of the language component because language is a natural interface to communication and it is now to AI. But to, my, to, to our point, this is where linguists are going to be needed uh, more than anything. Absolutely. Yeah. And it is actually a great opportunity, as Sergio was saying. I mean, it is true that now 
some languages may not be so well performing, let's say, on a large language model scale. But that's why uh, th that's a great opportunity because, uh, of course, data are missing. And, and if we create data and we create um, experts that can help us develop and fine tuning the models, then, of course, little by little results will be better and better by time. And this will, of course, um, help all those languages uh, be more and more um, used, I yep. would say. So let's let's talk about let's go into this, Salagia. That's um, what is RLHF? That would be the reinforcement learning uh, from human feedback. So basically, it is um, I would say a workflow where we um, we have the model uh, perform a certain task. It can be an evaluation. It could be a transcreation. It could be I mean, there could be several different, several different uh, applications. And then after the results of this application is ready, when the output is ready, we have this output being analyzed and validated by an expert, a human expert. So it can be, again, a subject matter expert and a linguist that would depend on the task and on the final work that we have. And um, we will use the feedback and the evaluation that we receive from the human expert to train the model and make sure that from that moment on, the model can learn from that feedback. So basically, if the model has already performed well, it would be rewarded because basically it got the right answer or it did a good job. It's like, like training a puppy, <laughs> give it a treat. Yeah, it's <laughs> pretty much training yeah. a puppy. I mean, I, I joke, but the same concept no, applies, it's right? It's the same process. And on the other way, if the, um, if the system has made mistakes or yeah, whatever, then it, it is penalized. And with this penalization, the model can learn and integrate uh, the correct, the needed corrections um, and, and improve the results, the quality of the results in the following rounds. So that's also one of the reasons why we cannot say that uh, one testing is enough. I mean, there should be several rounds of testing. It takes time. And it's also, you know, I mean, there's a lot of effort in there from the validators, the project managers, and all the people involved in these investigations. And um, it can be faster or quicker, quicker depending, depending on the quality of the large, large language model, but it, it definitely improves. So going back to the comment that we were reading before, there are some minority languages that do not perform well at the moment, but this doesn't mean that we can get good results in the future. We can right. get there, it just needs time and data. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You'd be surprised by how many languages actually we were expecting them to perform poorly. Yeah. Because of the quantity of, of content that there is in those languages online, that can be found online, but they've actually performed better than others. Like for some reason, Polish out of the box, like from the first round, performed way better hmm. in, um, um, in evaluation, so in MTQE, uh, so machine translation quality estimation, English to Polish performed better than something like English to Italian. Or English to Spanish. Or English yeah. to Spanish. So, really? Yeah, that's uh, like, we, when we got results like in English to Chinese, we weren't particularly surprised because of the quantity of content. Because there's so much Chinese out but there. But in yeah. English to Polish, we, we get results to up to 96% accuracy. 
Um, sometimes you've got results back from, from multiple uh, evaluators because this is also an important point. Yeah. You can have one. When we got the first one, we said, okay, it, it, it must be the linguist. And maybe this was, the reviewer was. <laughs> yeah, maybe <laughs> the reviewer is a little. You know, because the, 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 the smaller is your pool of human evaluators, the, the, the higher is the risk of bias. And so we did multiple exercises to make sure that that bias was reduced to the minimum. And we noticed that the English to Polish was one where just it's just performing well. Huh. Inter very interesting. So, but it, it goes a lot, not only now present that language is, but also how complex that language is and uh, the type of content. So there are multiple factors, but um, you'd be surprised, Oscar, but I'm but how many languages, in, in our opinion, would perform well. Well, and this brings up, I mean, this leads us nicely into a conversation around MTQE. So I want to, I want to ask you guys, what is MTQE? Um, what does it stand for? And what are the principles behind it? But before we go into that, it's, um, I mean, spoiler alert, it's about evaluating the quality of the output. Um, and so kind of at the root of the question is, how can I trust the output? You mentioned... Yeah, hallucination is the term that's being used for for this. Uh, the generative AI, like ChatGPT, for example, it likes to hallucinate. And what we mean by that is it just makes stuff up. If it doesn't know an answer, it just makes it up and says it very confidently. And I wanted to call out um, a very cool article that I found on scientific.com. And for those of you out there, and this is the plug, and maybe, Teresa, you can link to your blog or your articles pages, your resources pages on Scientific, or perhaps this article. It's called Why CMOs Need a New Mindset for Generative AI. And it kind of goes through the, the stages of AI enlightenment. And I, I wanted to bring this up because audience, look at this and kind of understand where, where are you in, in these stages. So stage one is curiosity. Stage two is uncertainty. Stage three is detachment. Stage four is self-awareness. And stage five is enlightenment. And of course, the article goes, in, you can't read this on screen unless you have a super high resolution monitor. But the article goes into much more details about which stage of these these um which which what each stage of these is so i encourage everybody out there listening go scientific.com check out the resources they have this and many other good articles out there so i say all this to kind of set the stage how can i trust the output and of course the answer is by measuring the quality which brings us back to my original question uh sergio and Savaggia. what is mtqe and i have got i've got graphs up here so just guide me through these Okay, so basically MTQE means machine translation quality evaluation. And it is one of the many applications that we um, can leverage um, for the uh, large language models. So basically we thought that uh, we could apply the large language models to evaluate the quality of an emptied string, so of a translation that has been generated from a machine translation engine to understand the quality of that machine translation engine and see if any further edit would be needed or if the output coming from the engine is good enough to be used as is. So that's what basically MTQE is. And it's one of the applications where we have been investigating um, 
in the past few months and, and one of the biggest investments that we have done for our customers. So basically, yeah, we, we, the idea is to have the model trained in order to give a score to the quality of an empty stream. Um, of course, the metrics and the, the evaluation that you use can be customized based on customer needs and the goal. But um, I mean, there is a lot of flexibility in the way uh, you can train the model. <clears throat> and in our case, we have trained the model so that the model gives us a score from zero to 100. And it should, of course, take into account several different language aspects. And then once the, um, the score is, once the model gives us a score, we show these scores to a language lead who is specifically trained in that domain, who knows the customer, who knows the customer's expectations, style guides, terminology, or all the necessary aspects, and ask this, this language lead to validate and let us know if the score that the um, AI has applied to the quality of that string is actually correct or not. And if not, to let us know which would have been the correct score uh, for that specific translation. And then once we have these reports from the language leads, what we do is we compare uh, the scores coming from the language leads against the original scores that the okay. AI gives us. And then from this analysis, we can see, you know, how much uh, both the language lead and the AI agreed on the quality of the translator, sorry, of the translation, or if maybe the AI is underperforming because maybe is given a higher scores than needed. So maybe the, the, the MT is thinking that the quality is actually better than it is, or maybe the other way around. Maybe the, the, the AI is thinking that the quality is not good enough, while on the contrary, it is. So we do all this kind of analysis, and, and based of, on, on, those, um, on those scores, we retrain the model. And then we run again uh, the evaluation and see if round by round, the level of accuracy of this evaluation gets better. And that's actually what it happens with the uh, reinforcement learning that we were talking about. So um, maybe we can show you also some data about this because we- Yeah, <clears throat> I'll, I'll, uh, I'll pull that up here. I'll, I'll pull up some charts, but just really quickly for, for understanding purposes, for the audience's sake, of course I understand, but for the sake of the audience. So what you're saying is the, the machines are actually doing the quality evaluation after training, of course. Um, exactly, so our, let's say the um, step that Salvador described is more our calibration, because again, as I was saying earlier, you can't really trust a large language, you, you, you can't use a large language model, which is a general purpose model for these kind of tasks. You need to fine tune it and, and make sure that it's not providing uh, scores that are unreal. So we use this calibration with the humans to let the large language model perform the MT assessment. And then also to, to the, our previous points, as Salvador was saying, this returns a score, yeah. which means it's a way of controlling hallucinations. Because okay. if, you add some, if you add some engineering on top of the function that returns a score and say, oh, this is not numeric, it means the model is somewhat hallucinated. But not only that, we, since MTQ is a very specific use case where you're evaluating a source and a target and returning a score, um, what happens as well, so if a score 
cannot return it. If, if you're not responding within the structure that I gave to the model, then that's an hallucination. And I can use techniques to reduce the amount of hallucinations as well as um, there is also the, the room for uh, this type of hallucination becomes lower and lower because I'm not asking you to generate words that I can control. Yeah. I'm asking you to generate very awesome thank you after this first step of calibration then once you realize that the language model is is ready basically it is reliable enough and you trust him because you have seen through the rounds of human validation that now it is performing like a good job and is like evaluating the quality of the mt in a reliable way then there is like a second stage where you introduce this application into your localization workflows okay. and that's also extremely important because here again we need to make sure that there is also a human in the loop and a final validation by a human we are not going to replace translators or reviewer yeah. we just want them to work in a more efficient way sure. and make their life easier basically so in this case what we do is once we trust a model for a specific language because of course the training is specific by language mm -hmm. so once we decide that the language is ready we introduce these in our workflows and we make sure that we run this um and and we decide basically which strings will go directly to the reviewer and which strings will go to a post editor first and then a reviewer oh, okay. so model decides if the model evaluates and that's automated says, right like there's no. not someone right okay no no no, oh, no it's no. not it's okay it is automated so that if if the quality is good enough for the model then there will be only one person checking that string and that would be the reviewer okay right and on the contrary if the quality is not good enough and the model thinks that a further post editing is needed then we send it first to a post editor and then to a human reviewer so that two humans okay. are in the loop it's one of the staples of responsible AI. i know we're going to talk about it later yeah any anything we're describing now even if we automate it to a certain degree let's say even 70 percent you can automate you still need that that remaining 30 percent or 20% or whatever to go through a human. Like, yeah. Otherwise, we, we would it would fall against our own principle responsible AI that we have as a, as a corporation, but that I think we do need as well as, as an industry. Okay, awesome. Thank you for explaining that. And I do want to look at these graphs because I've been teasing the graphs for the last half an hour here. But before we do that, for the especially for the sake of our podcast listeners, I wanted to take a look at the comments because there's some really interesting conversation going on, some comments here. Um, trust but verified. Kirill over um, at Content Quo. They're doing a lot of work around this too. I'm sure you guys are familiar with what they're doing over at Content Quo, um, automated QA and all of that stuff. Trust but verify, Content Quo's official corporate slogan. Um, I think that's everybody's, should be everybody's official corporate slogan when it comes to trusting AI. Um, Angelo Pasalacqua, who was just on the podcast, I think last week or so, um, chat GPT does translation because it's trained on replying to instructions. If one training instruction is translate, then it just does what it already knows based on the amount of language data it was trained on. So it's only as good as the data it's trained on. Um, in yeah. other words, yeah. no, that, that's very good. And, and, uh, you know, a trans large language models, chat GPT as well. It, fits that category, they are transformer-based models. So they, if, if I had to make a comparison, they work no differently than 
well, they do, but in a very similar fashion than the keyboard suggestions you have on your phone, right? Just I'm okay. talking about. So it just, the way it thinks is that it just, from a statistical level, it, it takes all of the data that it already has and it sees what's the next most valuable or, or most likely token for the type of request that you've made. So it's true, it's only good based on the language data it's trained on, uh, but also that's why in certain circumstances uh, hallucinates more than in others, because it might not know how to really handle that particular output. And so from a statistical level, the hallucination is what comes first, because maybe that's used in a text or in a corpus that wasn't necessarily designed for translation, and it was just a conversation that spoke to something that is not related to what you're asking to, to the moment. Makes sense. Makes sense. Oh, God, the comments are coming in faster than I can get to it. Um, you know what, guys? Great conversation in chat. I love it. Love the enthusiasm. But I really want to look at these graphs so these folks can walk us through them. So let me pull them up on screen here. We like the questions. We like the questions yeah, yeah. so far. We love them. I, I will get to them. I will come back to them. But let me let me, let me get through these. <laughs> I've got one, two, three, four, five. I don't have anything after this. We can go long if you guys want. Yeah, but, um, yeah that's fine. I've got five so then, slides. Talk to me. Okay. The graphs are your work. And again, this is because uh, from a... From an experimentation perspective for us as a company is really really important that when if anything we do from an experimentation it's validated by experts like Selvaggia. Uh, sometimes she corrects the way i write in italian uh, because we understand that uh, she's the expert and i think it should be more appropriate to speak about these graphs but they come from a lot of research that, that the team has done so yeah. take it away because i wouldn't well, be able to explain it as good as you okay uh, no. <laughs> of course you will okay so now this is a very uh yeah a very short graphic just to let you know how the model can improve from around to another thanks to the reinforcement learning so here uh, we're, we're just showing you an example of four language combinations um like russian spanish and japanese and, and with english so you can see that basically from round one to round two, all the language combination have improved the percentage of accuracy. Um, and with percentage of or accuracy here, I refer to the, let's say how much the model has ag agreed with the language lead. So basically how much the evaluation coming from the AI about the quality of the MT was correct. It doesn't mean that the, sorry. <laughs> Okay, so it, this uh, doesn't speak about the quality of the MT itself, it just speaks about the accuracy of the AI evaluating the MT. And as you can see, all languages from round one to round two, they all improved this percentage of accuracy. So it means that the reinforcement learning has improved and that the model has learned from all the mistakes that our language leads found during the first round and they performed better during the second round. And that's what we keep doing until we find, until we reach um, a level of reliability that's enough good for us to trust the model and use it in a, in a okay. real yeah, world. That's kind of the importance of the fine tuning. Uh, for, you know, they, they call them gene um, general purpose models for a reason, right? Don't sure. think about applying it without the fine tuning, without some prompt engineering. And these graphs really show the difference from one round to the other. You know, they, they were done side by side. The only difference between these two graphs is uh, that there was one round of reinforcement learning from human feedback done with a pool of users. 
a pool of linguists. So, so if you, if you can get that with one round, imagine how you can get with three or four rounds of it. So, if you have the right setup, if you have the right framework, the right testing metrics, you can still get large language models into production for specific use cases very fast. So, the fine tuning doesn't have to scare, but it's a needed step to to avoid certain cases we've seen in the news, let's say. Yeah. Right. Right. And help your clients avoid those cases. Yeah. Right. And just for those, because it might be low resolution for those watching it live and for those listening as a podcast, what we're seeing here is round one versus round two. We're looking at English to Russian, English to Spanish, Japanese to English and English to Japanese. Um, Russian has improved from 69% to 82% between round one and round two. English to Spanish, 79 to 84 Japanese to English, 79 to 83, and English to Japanese, 69 to 77. So these aren't small improvements and that are, are taking place between rounds. Uh, next slide, what do we got here? Language evaluation of AI provided output, transcreation evaluation. Oh yeah, talk, let's talk about transcreation. Yeah, so yeah, this was the testing that we did basically because we wanted to see how much the AI can help our transcreators um, be more efficient and basically what we did is we used some email marketing campaigns from one of um th that we have from one of, of our customers and we asked the ai to uh, generate three different um transcreation per string and then we submitted and we show all these suggestions to the transcreator and asked him to or her to evaluate and see if the suggestions coming from the AI were good, which one were better, which one were worse, let's say, and then take it from there and finally finish the job and, and further edit the sentences so that we could create the final copies uh, of the marketing um, campaigns. And then we asked this trans creator to, of course, evaluate what the quality of the original transcreation suggested by the AI was. And I would have to say that the I was impressed with the results that we got because I, I didn't think that the results were going to be so good in the first round because mm -hmm. this is the first round. And um, basically, yeah, here you can see the evaluation that was done on different aspects like terminology and style and accuracy and about the general overall quality of the text. But um, basically the comments coming from the language lead and transcreator was that um, there was a lot of um, variety in terms of synonyms, in terms of, um, yeah, in terms of uh, terminology. And that was extremely good for him because he didn't have to spend a lot of time by looking for synonyms. He just had a lot of ideas there to start with. And the amazing result was that by looking at that, uh, we were able to cut the turnaround times by 40%. And that's an amazing result. We should, were should I go to, to the next slide here? Turnaround time? Awesome. Yeah. So basically, yeah, this is a comparison between the time that we actually spent um, for the, you know, cr creating the final copy of this marketing campaign by using the AI, um, the, the AI support against the, 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 let's say, average time that the same transcreator would need to create the same by starting from scratch, by transcreating it from scratch. And we cut 
the TAT times by 40%, which is an amazing result. So that's another thing that, you know, we can, we don't want to replace our experts. We just want them to work better and, and, and faster. These, in this way, the trans creator could, instead of trans create from scratch, he could focus on style and on improving what was not, let's say, good enough coming from the AI, but there were other things that were already good and that he could take profit of them. And then also by having the AI providing different options for the same source was actually a very good way to, to brainstorming, I would say, okay. and create the final copy that we published. So that was a very interesting experiment that we did and it's something that we definitely want to keep doing. Um, and in meaning that with learning and reinforcement, results are expected to yep. improve and be better. Well, time. and this, um, I'm going to use this to segue into a, a comment here from Stephanie Donatano. Hey, Italians, you can read it better than I. Um, Donatanonio, sorry, my American is coming through. Are all these training and development time and costs already worth the final ROI? At which scale is the investment really interesting for a customer? Once you have gathered terminology, aligned the corpora, written the style guides, etc., is there really an economic interest in training AI and creating a large language model compared to the quote-unquote old style um, CAT or computer-aided translation-based workflow with advanced QA tools? I think this is, I mean, it's a very, very reasonable thing to ask with all of the training that's required and where's the ROI. And it made me think of it right here because we're seeing on the graph, you know, this is how much it decreases the turnaround time. Um, but yeah. have you found like, is there a break even point for, I mean, someone that's sending 200 words of translation per week, probably shouldn't at this stage invest in training large language models because they don't have enough data for a large language model. So what's kind of the, the break even point or minimal size? I don't know how to say it, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah. I would say that, let's say there is, um, this is, this is a, a call we had to make a few times, right? Where, the, the corpus from some of our customers just was enough to, to justify using a large language model, you yeah, know, because yeah. language model cost they have uh, uh, they need they need at the moment um, immense GPU power. Although open source community is making a lot of a lot of progress on that quantizing uh, uh, the models, but it's still something that it's uh, fairly expensive when compared to the traditional advanced QA workflows. Mm. Let, let me put it this way to, to reuse the word from the questions. I would say um, definitely the amount of data and the amount of volume you have to process um, make a difference, right? But also we don't see large language models being used as a replacement of the existing technology. That's, like, that's an important point to make, right? Yeah. For anyone out there, because I think there are still people out there that are assuming this is replacing traditional workflows. This is replacing machine translation. The, the reason why, to give you an example, we're using these, in all of the use cases that we've given you so far, apart from transcreation, a lot of those give a score, give an evaluation, right? And the reason why is that it's because 
that's a number from zero to 100. And that's something that from a token perspective is not very expensive. And it doesn't take time to generate, right? Because another thing that large language models are, uh, are terrible at is that they take time to run compared to traditional technology. So let's say when you look holistically at an end-to-end -end localization workflow, you have to decide where to place a large language model in order for that to, to give you some return or investment, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's not something that replaces existing technology. It's not something that would replace te terminology management, or it's not something that at the moment would replace, for example, TMs, right. wouldn't make sense. Or it's not something, you know, it's not something that would replace geopolitical checks because also those are just checks that run faster in the way they're done currently and they are also more stable in general and just yeah. they, they just cost less that's why for example we're looking at an mtqe we, we don't want to use large language models as a replacement of nft why nft is fast and it's and it's already proven and it's cheap right but there are cases where if, you, if we look at the transcreation and if we look at that at volume for example that 40 percent might already be good enough of a justification for some companies to just use a large language model, yeah. right? But it's something that uh, uh, it really depends where in the in the in the workflow. Yeah. In in our scenario, we're just using it as one block of the traditional workflow, or even an AI augmented workflow, which is not necessarily large language models. And and what I'm hearing from from you, let me translate. If you are an enterprise localization buyer, director, whatever your title is out there, and you want to understand where that break-even point is or where the best places to implement them in is www.scientific.com forward slash contact us right like exactly. i'm sure you guys and and nimsy nimsy does consulting like that too there are people i'm, I'm not just gonna plug nimsy or plug you guys but there there are experts out there which i'd love to ask your your opinion well no i'm not even gonna ask your opinion i'm gonna make a statement and you can rebut me if i'm wrong but with all of this ai it's adding to the supply chain complexity of localization i think there's buyers out there that feel that they need to develop the expertise in-house well cool do that if that if that's what you want to do i would recommend against it um there's a reason the the value chain in the language services industry looks like how it does um it's because rely upon the experts and there are localization companies out there and other companies out there that have developed the expertise so that you don't have to if you're on the buyer's side yeah there. no 100 percent, and uh and again, all of this research we, 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 we are speaking about today, it's sort of the added value of working with companies like us, because as part of our research right. and development, we are deeply looking into these for our own workflows, but also because we know the added value that this is going to bring when we're putting uh, this type of conversation. Yeah. And I, I like the fact that you've, you said like you had to tell several companies kind of like, yeah, it doesn't make sense for you to do this. That's always as a consultant, as a services company, that's always, a, it's a tough call to make because you're like, I want your money, but <laughs> I can't, I can't. You can suggest something that they haven't think of, yeah. but that you see the potential. So maybe, maybe they can use it anyway, but just not the way they thought. 
yeah, yeah. we understand yeah. that there is also pressure in the market to start using generative AI. Yeah, you know. Well, a lot of people's bosses are. A lot of people are asking about generative AI because their boss is coming to them saying they they read exactly. an article in Forbes or saw a tweet and they're like, "Hey, are you use are we using AI?" And that's like the the maturity of the conversation that they're having internally. So they just need to show something. Yeah, yeah, we, we get pulled in a lot of these conversations. And as you said, sometimes it's a hard call, but at the same time, uh, there are multiple steps of adopting AI, right? And large language models, you gotta have a data set already. Sometimes it can be overcomplicated for what your needs are. But there might be a few steps prior. Like yeah. again, a good MP engine, that it might already gives you, give you that ROI without going as far as a large language model. Yeah. Large language models are great. Yeah. Uh, and, and they are bringing some savings, as, as Salvaja was showing, and some cost efficiencies in the whole process. But they aren't the only answer, right? The, yeah. They are, let's say, at the moment, the answer that is mainstream. Let me put it to you this way. Fair. Makes sense. All right. Back, back to our graphs. Uh, first of all, hey, can you guys stick around for a little bit longer than the hour that we scheduled this for? Salvaja, Sergio? Slightly, yeah, no yes. Yeah, slightly. All right. I just need to know how to how 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 much to crack the whip here on the agenda, but so much good stuff. I I, I don't want to skip anything, but I am going to skip skip these graphs. I'll tell you what, guys. If you're out there, we have a graph on content generation inputs, AI generated multilingual contents, SME average evaluation, and a graph on content generation evaluation, AI generated multilingual contents, output average evaluation, zero to ten scale. Um, reach out to Teresa. Maybe you can put in the comments um, how best to contact Scientific if people are interested in finding out more where they can find this stuff online. Um, unless, Silvaja or Sergio, is there anything? Did you want to cover anything in here? It's your show today. You were going to say well, You can say it. Yeah, can, I yeah, was going to say it. It's free advertising. Yeah, actually, <laughs> um, we are going to publish an ebook. Uh, That's right. Like, I didn't know that that was announced yet, so I didn't yeah. want to say anything about it. So, we are allowed saying it. We okay. are releasing an ebook in a few in a few days that will cover a lot of this research people. and uh, a lot of these technologies at the moment being built in as part of our um, large language model framework that we call Onibi. So a lot of these is available out of the box uh, for for customers that want to use our framework, our legend model framework to empower their uh, localization workflows. So it's an ebook coming soon as well, where you can have a look at this entire research and also have information on how to contact us now reach out to us to nice. sort of look at all of these in deeper detail. All right. So now, you, now since I let you use my platform for advertising, now you have to promise to come back on and talk about it when you actually do have it. Whenever you want. That'll, yeah, that'll sure. be a fun conversation. Um, but I wanted to, just because we're running lower on time here, I think we've talked quite a bit about the fine-tuning there. I want to talk about responsible AI. Um, what do you mean by responsible AI? And uh, I'll just plug another article that's from scientific.com talking about how large language models can improve a global customer experience. And this is just looking at a narrow scope of using it for customer experience, um, going over pros and cons. Um, instant some pros are instant customer support in every language, personalization, monitoring customer sentiment, lots more details I'm not going to go into for the sake of time. Some cons are the inaccuracies, biases, lack of empathy. We've kind of covered those, but you can find that at scientific.com. Um, or maybe Teresa will, if she's still watching, can put a link to that in, in the chat. Um, but for today, let's close it up with what is responsible AI. Talk to me about that. 
Yeah, so basically these are all of the practices and the framework where basically uh, it, it's basically a framework to uh, control how AI is deployed, sort of making sure that, for example, um, security and, and, and privacy type of um, data is, is, is um, protected and how data is uh, collected and how the data is consumed and affecting a workflow, for example, right? So end-to-end, -end, the whole process of deployment AI, deploying AI from the collection of the data. So how is the data collected? Is this representative of um, uh, the use case or, or of, of the diversity of the world that we're trying to cover with that particular use case? Is, is, is that representative? And also, how is the data labeled and annotated in order to train these models, for example, right? Or how is it then deployed to ensure that the AI is bringing an improvement to the mm. whole experience of the human, and it's not, and and it's something that is also under control, right? It's not something that is hallucinating, yeah. or maybe it's something that is bringing um, bias into into the experience, right? To to, to give a very practical example, um, there was a model which uh, has hallucinated recently to the question, what are the duties of a um, CEO of a company. And the way the model replied was using um, he as the gender, right? Basically, uh -oh. it was assuming that the gender of the CEO was male. Uh -oh. uh, yep. So that means that there is a gender bias in, yep. in the source data that was used, or potentially that that he was um, the word sort of associated the most with the CEO with the data. So a way of deploying that type of AI responsibly is reinforcement learning from human feedback. So ensuring that humans can catch that the type of surprises in, within your data and also that the data is analyzed. But also we're seeing a lot of growth in um, um, what we call post-AI or, or AI red teaming. Red teaming is a, is a terminology that we use in the past for penetration of websites or penetration of, 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 of infrastructure, but now is being used so for services, we've been using it for services where a human is in the loop with the sole purpose of hallucinating the model. So basically, in ensuring that the model doesn't do the mistake that it just done, or for example, if you see how companies are deploying this model, like if you, if you look at ChatGPT, ChatGPT won't discuss anything that is illegal or unlawful, right? Yeah, but there are ways you I can tried. <laughs> there are ways that you can trick the model in doing that. Okay, this yeah. In the model. I so figured some of those out too. Yeah. In these type of services, if they're building a model to ensure that essentially a penetration tester, but it's not the right word, it's really a human that has experience into tricking the model by using social engineering, reduces those hallucinations. And those build a safe AI experience, right, from the end-to-end -end process from the data collection, so how the data is collected, how the data is used, utilized, is the data anonymized before being collected, where how is the data stored, from how the AI is deployed, is it in support or in replacement of, of a human being, for example. And, 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 if, and, and after that, how is that data consumed and how are the risks of hallucination and, and bad answers, for example, or how critical is the use case, right? If you're applying it into 
the healthcare space, which I consider to be one of the most critical, is it, is it going to make a huge difference between someone living? Then, in that case, that that would fall, that would have to follow very strong responsible AI rules to make sure that a medical expert, a doctor, is always in the loop and has an unbiased judgment always the output of that model, for example. So, it's it's about uh, really controlling the model of the output and uh, co controlling the model from input to deployment to output. So it's it's really, in a way, uh, an overarching committee in a way, and many companies are building now committee and frameworks that looks that look at the responsible deployment of a model. So it's something that we do mm. in behalf of our customers many times as, as we go into mm. these projects, but it's also uh, um, the safe AI and the whole responsible AI practices is something that will need to be part of, 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 of the education of these companies as they deploy AI. You can't just deploy AI for everything or, or without, there, you know. There has to be some oversight and governance exactly. to it, exactly. essentially. That's well, right. That sums it up pretty nicely. Um, anything to add, Savaja? Well, no, not really, actually, Sergio. Congrats very well. Yeah, he <laughs> did. He did. <laughs> right. I'd be I'd be very impressed if you had something to add to that. <laughs> um, nice, nicely summarized. I also want to, um, I'm going to turn it over to Vincent here because I saw a comment, if I can find it. Um, Sabine asks, where are you, Sabine? Do you buy, and that was, Sabine, I apologize. I was purposefully ignoring this because it's a whole rabbit hole I didn't want to go down to. Um, but do you buy slash pay for the data to train the large language models? Are people aware of the data being used? And Vincent, um, hey, Vincent, how's it going? Long time no see. Um, Sabine Bourgeois, the, for production fine-tuning, we use only data that we or our clients already own. The base engines that we test on top of come from many sources, but the ultimate implementations we deploy into production come from the transparent LLM suppliers who publish their training data. Our local implementations in cure, um, uh, ensure security, etc. I just want to make that point um, because, and Vincent, of course, is part of Scientific, um, super knowledgeable guy. So I wanted to make that point in case there was any worry about, you know, data being used that shouldn't be used out there. Like, as part of our principles, really, we don't use any data that comes from the web. You cannot say the same for other companies, let's say, that yeah. had the specific problems uh, about these very topics, say, for example, to be compliant with GDPR. Uh, Vincent is very right. We 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 don't use uh, large language. Well, first of all, for our fine tuning of models, we 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 take data we purchase and we and we own or even we build because we've been uh, in the language space for so long that we just happen to have these corpuses. Yeah. But also, well, we don't roll anything. Th out. This is a good point. Like you're talking, like the whole world is talking about generative AI and large language models right now. And we here in the industry, well, some of us, some of you guys, the on the vendor side anyways, you're sitting on gold mines because you've been doing this for so long. You've been collecting the data that we're, our industry is in a unique position to leverage that data. Right now, other companies are having conversations about how do I get the data to train, train my language models? And we're, we're having the conversation of how do I use my data that I've been collecting for 20 years? to yeah. ethically, of course, and responsibly create language models. Yeah, I would say that is, uh, there are, I would say two topics there. First of all, there is the 
if you're using a model that is commercially available, see an open AI, you, you won't ever know how and where your data is stored. Yeah, there are clear privacy policies that companies like OpenAI publish, but you know, for some customers, this is a risk, right? And in the way we approach it is we really just use open source models that are deployed in, in servers we own and, 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 and the data of our customers is in those servers. Yeah. But most importantly, we use data for our from our customers only if our customers enroll to use these models. And they are aware and, of how and, and this is answering somewhat the questions that being just followed up with. Um, what I meant is, do people like us know that our data is being sold? And I would answer that by saying, if you work with an ethical company with that's following these standards, your data is not being sold unless there's a conversation about that. However, keep asking that question. Don't assume that every company, you know, re yeah, read they, your end user license agreements, right? They, uh, yeah. That, like where you post your data, what you post on social media might not necessarily be owned by you, by, 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 by a third-party company. Uh, see, for example, Reddit that now is having this whole discussion on APIs because of the of the boom of language. But the way you know, a corporation like us is, is very sensitive to topics like GDPR, for example. Right? We right. can just collect data of European citizens like that, or and that's problems that OpenAI had. And, and we know we wouldn't be having because again, all of the fine tuning and all of the data sources that we that we build are essentially the linguists are creating that data and, and they are being paid for the rights to that data that is being created specifically for this research purpose. You know, and you know, someone might be bad when I post on social media, that's not for research. And that's very debatable. It's a very group big gray area at the moment where companies are debating and and we don't necessarily agree or disagree with the debate in order to stay out of any debate we just build our own data set we take the sources that we have been nurturing in the past in terms of tms in terms of previous corpus that we built for other type of language research and bring those to build our uh, large language models. And if our customers want to use large language models to benefit their own workflow and they have their data and they own that data, they can bring that data into their own version of our large language model framework mm -hmm. and we can leverage those data, but we don't crawl data online. And and because again, that's also part of what I was saying from a data collection perspective, part of responsible AI. I mean, I'm a Someone, I'm, I'm a person that posts online myself. I wouldn't want my data to be used right. for purposes I haven't agreed to. So we, we are very sensitive to the topic and that's part of our responsibility. <laughs> no, it's another important thing is that we do not use AI to train AI. I mean, yeah. that's also another important, I mean, yeah, it may be obvious. It took us an hour to mention that. That's an important point, right? <laughs> yeah. So thank you for but, bringing that I mean, up. It's, but it's important to state it and it's not another thing about the ethical. AI and ethical application. I mean, sometimes there are some lines that should be drawn and maybe uh, no one think about it, but that's something that we definitely do at Scientific. Yeah. Well, thank you for clarifying. Um, Savaja, Sergio, any, what, anything, we're, we're six minutes over time already, but anything I forgot to ask you, any additional points? Keeping in mind, I expect either you or some colleagues back on to talk about the ebook in a little while. Okay. No, I, I think yeah. that we covered. The, I think uh, it was a nice chat. Uh, thank you okay. for having us. Yes.
Well, thank you very much, guys. And very involved with chat. This is so for you guys information. I think this might be a first. We um I think we only had like 55 people register for this event, but at one point there was like close to 80 people logged in. So I don't know how we have more people logged in than were registered, but it was a popular little chat today, very active chat. And thank you for everybody for that conversation in, in the comment section. So I'll, I'll, uh, I'll start taking us out here. And thank you very much, guys. Uh, ladies, gentlemen, and chat, we are out of time for today. If you enjoyed this Nimsy Live experience, then you can join us next time tomorrow when we're going to be talking about creating content in low resource languages. So Oscar, if you're still with us, we're going to be talking about that, what your question was. Um, that's going to be, of course, featuring Addy and Emmanuel from Bolingo Consult, an LSP based out of Accra, Ghana. We've had them on the show before, great friends of Nimsy. And I think my partner Renato is going to be joining me for that one, so it'll be a good episode. I appreciate today's guests, Salvaja and Sergio. I appreciate my colleagues here at Nimsy Insights doing all of the hard work so I can have these fun conversations. I appreciate everybody in our industry who fills out Nimsy surveys and schedules briefings with our analysts so that we can include you in our published industry research. And finally, I appreciate you, the audience, who are joining us live today. I appreciate the dialogue, everybody who left comments, responded to comments, and kept the conversation going. And I look forward to next time. Cheers. Oh,